Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. After the fall of Mesopotamia's first great empire, two rivals vied for power in a titanic struggle for the fate of the region. The Babylonians to the south and the Assyrians to the north challenged one another for centuries. With a penchant for violence, the Assyrians would build the largest empire yet seen, only to have it wiped away with the birth of the mighty Babylonian Empire. Still regarded as perhaps the most grand city in ancient history, Babylon's glories ring through the annals of time. On this episode, we discuss the Babylonian Empire. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On season two of the series, we're discussing the great empires of the ancient world, the forces that created and destroyed them, and the lasting legacies they leave behind that help shape our modern age. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer, on my author's website, BradyKreitzer.com, and your home for everything wartime on the web wartimepodcast.com. Today's episode is a very special episode because it allows us to really study the transition of power in the ancient world from one dominating faction to another. All too often when we study these ancient times, we talk about the rise of this empire and the fall of the other, but we never really take the time to tear apart the mechanisms and processes that bring that change about. Well, this story is going to focus, of course, in Mesopotamia, and we're going to tell the story of two very different kingdoms competing to become two very different empires. Remember, at its basic level, empire is about worldview. Empire is about your way of life dominating not only your opponent's way of life, but everyone's way of life, including your allies. It's a process of trial and error, It's nothing done quickly, and it's only done successfully if you can procure a strong base of support to ensure your longevity. Mesopotamia, as we've already talked about, has been a world of great change, almost in a state of constant flux. But out of this change and out of this transition, we'll see the rise of two rival empires, the mighty Assyrians to the north and the Babylonians to the south how they interact with each other, and their common origins will allow us to better understand the dynamic quality of the ancient world that keeps drawing us back three millennia. In the first few episodes of this season, we spent a lot of time in Mesopotamia, but we've also moved on to the larger Egyptian world, the Nile River Valley. But to leave Mesopotamia altogether would do a great injustice to the region because the developments and the events of Mesopotamia will affect all of the ancient peoples nearby, including the larger Egyptian world. We return to Mesopotamia to get a better sense 
of what's going on since we've left it. Before we get there, though, let's have a bit of review. We talked about the fact that it's universally agreed that the Western world's very first true civilization, the Sumerian civilization, developed between the two rivers in Mesopotamia. They were a very homogenous culture. Similar languages, similar religions, similar styles of living. Again, they were a society. But their political differences really stopped them from ever recognizing their full potentials, even though they had everything in common. They couldn't put aside their basic competitive instincts to allow that civilization to flourish to its greatest extent. We saw over 30 small city-states in Sumeria, constantly fighting, constantly at war. So much so, in fact, that they actually whittled themselves down into such a weak position that an outside aggressor could move in and take advantage of that weakness. That outside aggressor were a group of non-Sumerian peoples we call the Akkadians. Now, the Akkadians are going to be our window into understanding the world that the Babylonian and Assyrian empires arise from, because they share these common non-Sumerian origins. Remember, we like to say that the Sumerian language is a language isolate. That is, it developed on its own with no continuous transition of descendancy in the future. These people that very quickly moved in to the Sumerian world, though, the Akkadians, did so in a fashion that today, using the benefit of history and hindsight, we can see is a very systematic, very slow-moving but effective mechanism. They began to move into the Sumerian world as immigrants. They began to settle in the northern reaches of Mesopotamia. And after a number of centuries, they really became a critical portion of the population. They were always considered a minority in the population, a second-class citizenry, if you could. But their infiltration had grown so much and ran so deep, it allowed a man of Akkadian birth, Sargon the Great, who we talked about in Episode 2 of Wartime this season, could rise to power and build what we could call the world's first true empire. He dominated the entire Mesopotamian region, from the Mediterranean Sea in the west all the way to the Persian Gulf in the east, or what they would have called the northern and southern seas. It was an impressive achievement, but it was accomplished through the very mechanisms we just discussed. Slow but prosperous immigration that led to expansion. That's what we saw. And what we could say about Sargon is he took this very divided place. Again, over 30 different city-states, sometimes an alliance, sometimes fighting, all retaining their own identity. And he brought them under one proverbial flag, his proverbial flag. And he created a new style of order and domination in the world. To this day, when we visualize power in the world, all throughout history, we think of Sargon's very basic model. Now, Sargon was very careful with his takeover because he understood that most of his population were not like him. They were not Akkadian. Most of the people he dominated spoke different languages, had different traditions, worshipped different gods, saw the world in a fundamentally different way. And Sargon understood that by disrupting those fundamental differences, by disrupting those things that made them different, he risked making them very angry at him and ultimately shortening his reign. He told these people, keep your language, keep your tradition. 
keep your faith, keep your music, keep your literature. Just realize that I am in power and you must pay tribute to me, and that's the only requirement I have of you. Now, of course, there was obligatory military service, but we would describe this as a very benevolent, but also very calculated maneuver by Sargon, because he practiced what will become known in the future as assimilation. And he will set a very clear precedent for leaders that we'll talk about today who wanted to mimic his reign and replicate his success. Now, one of the things we've discussed in some detail in Egypt, but one that will really be apparent today, is the notion of gaining power. You can gain power very quickly. You can gain power very brutally. But if you choose to go that way, even though you can gain a large amount of political influence very quickly, you're going to guarantee that you lose it just as fast. Now, Sargon's takeover was hostile. It didn't involve military campaigns. But it wasn't necessarily the backbone of his reign that we're talking about. His style of administration was much more uh, conciliatory. Remember, he adopted the Sumerian writing system of cuneiform because he saw the benefit and he saw his own Akkadian people didn't have it. He took elements of the Sumerian religion, large pieces of them, and made them his own because, again, he saw it was a much more sophisticated uh, and much more nuanced style of worship. So Sargon makes those concessions that guarantees his success, but his empire falls nevertheless. And that's an important lesson for us when we study empire. Remember, how do you gauge the success of an empire? All empires fail, they all do. But the question we have to ask is how long do they last? If you begin your analysis by asking, does this empire live on forever? You're going to be sorely disappointed. But if you gauge a a ruler's competency on the length of his reign and the length of his dynastic control, then you're going to see the longer it is, typically the more effective it is. And the elements we just talked about will be represented throughout. But when does Sargon's empire fall? Well, this is where we left off with our discussion of Mesopotamia. You recall that as Sargon's Akkadian power really takes hold and Sargon's descendants will reign in a very similar fashion he did, Sumeria and Mesopotamia as a whole becomes a very dynamic place. New peoples move into the region. New peoples move into the river valley that never lived there before. And over a period of time, they ingrain themselves in that society, first as second-class citizens, as minorities, but little by little gaining a presence and gaining a hold between the two rivers, just like the Akkadians did to the Sumerians. We see it happen at this time. Now, as Sargon's dynastic power begins to fall, Sumerians will say will take back control of the river valley, and they establish what we've already talked about as the third dynasty of Ur. We'll just call it the third dynasty for now. But this is a Sumerian resurgence. This is a group of people who understand Akkadians are now a part of their life that will never go away. You'll never return to a, a, a Mesopotamia with just Sumerians and no one else. So they actually call themselves the rulers of Sumer and Akkad. They recognize that if Akkadians are not equal to them, they're a critical part of this society. But the same forces are at work. New peoples move in, and they begin to carve out a place for themselves. Now over time, the third dynasty will grow weak, and these new minority groups will begin to keep small parts of what was formerly Sargon's unified world for themselves. 
One of these people came from the far west, known as the Amorites. Now, the Amorites, like the Akkadians, are a Semitic people. They're a nomadic people. The Sumerians would consider them a barbaric people. They would say things like, they do not cook their meat before they eat it. They live in tents rather than living in cities. I mean, there was a very real sense that these people were not only outsiders, but people that were so backward and so unusual and so, quite frankly, underdeveloped that they can never play an effective role in this society. But little by little, the Amorites became a major force between the two rivers themselves, the Tigris and Euphrates, so much so that they began to carve out their own individual city-state, called Babylon, for themselves. So when we trace what Babylonia will become, this amazing achievement of the ancient world, and this critical development in our Western civilization, it seems like it comes from such a humble beginning, but it'll give you some insight into the ups and downs and the rise and fall and the very fluid nature of power in the ancient world. As the third dynasty of Sumer grew weaker and weaker, what we saw was at first what could appear as a regression between the rivers. We saw not one major kingdom or one major empire ruling all, but we saw individual city-states begin to dominate and control themselves more and more and more. So much so that we'd see something of an intermediary period. Babylon, as an Amorite city, wasn't necessarily always controlled by some overarching umbrella power. In fact, neither were the other major city-states of the region. But they began to claim out more of a place for themselves. And herein lies one of the real challenges of empire. Empires, by their very existence, are parcels of land and groups of people who share nothing in common other than a worldview that's imposed on them. Well, eventually, those individual pieces begin to clamor and claw for more autonomy, for more freedom, and eventually rebellion occurs. So at this time period, you see warring city-states once again, in the absence of what used to be a major empire. We're talking about the year about 1800 BCE. But the Amorite city of Babylon is one of many cities at this time that really is seeking out a place for itself in this world. And very quickly, it's becoming one of the major power brokers in the region between the two rivers. Again, remember, there's over 30 individual city-states. Some are more powerful than others. Babylon is really establishing itself in the south as a major broker of power in the region. But that is not to say they're the only broker of power in the region. They'll have their own local competitors, but it becomes very clear that there is now a divide in the Mesopotamian world. If you can picture the Mesopotamian River Valley, the Tigris and Euphrates, uh, running parallel, side by side, going from southeast to northwest, we would see that area really begin to be bisected between two very different ruling powers. The first would be the Babylonians in the south. They're really dividing up what used to be the Sumerian world. But to the north, you saw a very different new power emerge out of the city of Nineveh, known as Assyria. And that's the dynamic we're going to explore in this episode. Babylonia to the south, touching the Persian Gulf, and Assyria to the north, touching almost all the way, but eventually, yes, all the way, to the Mediterranean Sea. They're both what we would consider to be Mesopotamian peoples. They both are direct descendants of Sargon the Great's world, 
and they both want to replicate what Sargon did. But they're going to go in different directions to do it, and they're going to take very different approaches to gaining power, which when studied against one another gives us a great insight into the ancient world. Let's begin with Babylon. In our modern sense, the city of Babylon will hearken you back to a golden age of the ancient world. The city of Babylon has really grown into a symbol of culture and advancement and a high point of Western civilization. Throughout its history, it was glorified by the Egyptians, it was glorified by the Greeks, it was glorified by the Romans. We still hold it in the great esteem today. But what we want to focus on is what being Babylonian really meant. Uh, and how Babylon really grew to such an amazing place. Again, it is not possible without understanding this larger Mesopotamian world. And it's really not possible without understanding the man who took Babylon from a relatively weak, uh, singular city-state to develop a kingdom, and eventually an empire, that rivaled Sargon's itself. That man is Hammurabi. Hammurabi was not the first Babylonian king, not even close, but he really is the first man to take Babylonian power, Babylonian influence, and really spread it throughout the region. And the way he does it is through war. Hammurabi will have a 43-year reign. And if there's one guiding principle of Hammurabi we could have, it's that he truly and genuinely, even though he was almost a thousand years later, admired what Sargon did in the ancient world, and truly hoped to replicate his successes. Now, Hammurabi gained power and also propelled Babylon to new heights by doing what Sargon did very early on in his career. He attacked one small city-state after another, gaining control of the city and also the surrounding territory little by little. The individual city-states around him even their polar opposite, the Assyrians, eventually fell under control of Hammurabi. The Assyrians would certainly have their revenge. But at this time, it's Babylon's world. And Hammurabi builds himself an impressive empire. When you study the ancient world, when you study ancient Mesopotamia, it almost always goes in terms of the, perhaps, Mount Rushmore of the ancient world. Uh, Sargon first, Hammurabi the Great second. Now, when we think about Hammurabi, Yes, we can talk about military conquest, which really was, again, modeled after Sargon's conquest. But we have to always stay focused on what developments from their world directly affect ours. And Hammurabi is a wonderful place to begin this discussion. When we think of royal authority, right? when we think about what it would be like to be king, it's a very human emotion. It's a very human style of thinking to picture yourself in complete control. Your whims and your wills are fulfilled, uh, no questions asked. You know, the old Roman stereotype of laying on the ground eating the grapes in a golden throne, these sort of things come to mind. But there are very real issues of power that when you are in a position of royal domain, especially in the ancient world, that you have to live up to. There are certain obligations you have to meet. It's not all, you know, wonderful uh, and, and powerful, as we tend to think. You certainly, if you lived in that time, wanted to be on top, though. There's no doubt. But Hammurabi's a great example of this. Hammurabi looks at a new empire that he builds, modeled after Sargon's, and he begins to look at how we can unify these very different peoples, because there were dozens and dozens of different ethnic groups 
some supportive of his reign, some not so much, that were all, again, a very divided place. And whenever Hammurabi views this, he views these as all potential threats to his reign. Hammurabi will set forward a new mission, a new goal, not just to gobble up territory and gain power and increase his personal fortune, but to bring a new quality of life to living within Hammurabi's world. Again, he's the king of Babylon. This is now a Babylonian world. And Babylon, this uh, bastion of, of art and literature and science and political achievement and philosophy, is going to let you know that you are now part of that world. Hammurabi is most famous for what we describe as the Code of Hammurabi. And most would agree this is the first real opportunity to arrange uh, a transferable and practical code of law throughout the ancient world. Hammurabi's code is highly impressive because what it does is takes very common disputes amongst people in the empire and gives you a very clear causational uh, response. Hammurabi's code really uh, is the ancestor of our modern conception of law and order in the world. That's a big statement, but Hammurabi's code is the first. It addresses all sorts of issues that we would consider to be integral and engaging in a peaceful societal exchange. Hammurabi's laws range everything from basic petty crime, to murder, to family law, to economic law, to commercial law. They're all represented. And many of these are much more progressive than we'd ever really think we'd see in the ancient world. Now, Hammurabi's code uh, is worth a laugh at times when you read through it, because it is it is genuinely guided by the principle we would describe today as an eye for an eye, certainly not the foundation of our Western conception of justice, but just the fact that you can open a book, go to a source, uh, and find a very practical solution to a lot of very common problems takes the ancient world to a new level, and it's why we hold Hammurabi in such high regard. Some of his laws, which we'll read through now, uh, I, I think are very telling, dealing with very prominent issues of the ancient world exclusively. Others, I think, pretty shocking. Things like rights for a married woman, inheritance rights for a married woman, um, things that we typically don't see addressed in the larger history of the Western world. But we can break some of these down by their topics, everything from religion to trade to slavery. Uh, the most basic place we could start with Hammurabi's code is probably something as simple as common theft. And we'll see this as law number 22 in Hammurabi's code. He says, if anyone is committing a robbery and is caught, then he shall be put to death. That's a very tough call, I guess, for something as basic as theft, but it offers a very clear solution. Uh, law number 42 addresses workers' rights. If anyone take over a field to till it and obtain no harvest therefrom, it must be proved that he did no work on that field, and he must deliver grain, just as his neighbor raised, to the owner of the field. Religion is addressed in Hammurabi's Code, number 127. If anyone, quote, point the finger at a sister of a god or the wife of any one man and cannot prove it, this man shall be taken before the judges, and his brow shall be marked. And that would typically be through mutilation, cutting, or scratching of some way. Military service, law number 133, is addressed. If a man is taken prisoner at war, and there is a sustenance in his house, but his wife leave the house in court, 
and go to another house. Because this wife did not keep her court and went to another house, she shall judicially be condemned and thrown into the water. This is very much the, the style you see. But if there is one law that Hammurabi writes down, one code that typifies the whole thing, it's clearly law number 196. And unfortunately for most people in history, this style of judicial thinking, this style of jurisprudence, really dominated their way of life. And the law is number 196. If a man destroy the eye of another man, they shall destroy his eye. If one man break a man's bone, they shall break his bone. If one destroy the eye of a free man, or break the bone of a free man, he shall pay one piece of silver. If one destroy the eye of a man's slave, or break the bone of a man's slave, he shall pay one half the price. So, what we can say is, Hammurabi does build an empire uh, that does replace Sargon, and it's going to be a fleeting empire, but it's large and it's expansive. But he also puts forward this sense of how Babylonian rule should be implemented. It's a systematic way, it's a logical way, it's a scientific way. When you hear Babylon, you think of a place that is guided by reason and not by the lesser human emotions. To this degree, the Western world owes Hammurabi a great deal. But his 43-year reign uh, will set a new precedence in control and mechanisms of power. And unfortunately, it will fall relatively quickly. What replaces it will be much more fierce. One of the real features of reign and control in the ancient world that we have to be more clear on than we have been so far is how empires fall and how they disappear. When you study Mesopotamia, you see this a lot, and it can be confusing and it can be unsatisfying. But here's what we have to clarify. Empires never just disappear. And for that matter, they never just appear out of nowhere. Empires will fluctuate up and down. They have peaks and they have valleys. And while most of these city-states are always present, they aren't always in the bottom position or always in the top position, but they fluctuate. After Hammurabi, the Babylonian kingdom really begins to slip. It really begins to slide, because they can't find rulers that were as dynamic or as powerful as Hammurabi to replace him. Now, Hammurabi did establish Babylon as the center of the ancient world. He did that. But as he fell out of favor, and as his dynastic rule fell out of favor, someone had to replace it. Remember, nature abhors a vacuum. And the individual group that replaced it would rule in a much different way, and they were the Assyrians. Now, we talked about who the Assyrians were already just a bit. Remember, at the fall of the old Sumerian order, Babylon came to dominate the southern part of Mesopotamia. Assyria would really carve out a place in the north, and they were always competitors, and they really took turns in a lot of ways controlling the region. Who was more powerful than the other? Well, the Assyrians are a fundamentally different group, and they are one of the most fascinating groups we can talk about in the ancient world based on their worldview. The Assyrians, if we can say anything about them, were a warrior people. While the Babylonians believed in ruling through logic and ruling through reason and ruling through fairness, mixed in, of course, with a heavy dose of brutality when necessary, the Assyrians believed that power should be taken in the most brutal and effective way possible. And the most effective way possible for them was quick lightning strikes, campaigns of terror and violence. 
Remember, the Mesopotamian world is a collection of small city-states. Some will be on your side as natural allies, some not so much. The Assyrians believed the best diplomacy was a violent diplomacy. They were a hyper-aggressive people with a hyper-aggressive foreign policy and a real penchant for using political violence to achieve their goals. The stories of the Assyrians throughout their various leaders really can send a shudder down your spine when you study them and you understand that the things they talk about actually happened. Some of the stories the Assyrians will use will be the use of calculated siege. That is, when a city-state would rebel against their rule as they were growing in power. The Assyrians would not simply try to resolve the issue diplomatically. The Assyrians would make it a point to decimate and devastate the city as quickly as possible. And the artifacts we have, some of the reliefs we have, the artistic renderings we have, show that the Assyrians were as adept at breaking down a walled city as anyone, and the repercussions were always severely damaging. If you look at some of these reliefs, you can see the Assyrians doing everything from breaking down city walls to tunneling under city walls. But they never granted clemency to a small city-state that rebelled against them. The Assyrians made an example of them in horrifying ways. I always like to, to say the Assyrians are really a profile in violence. Because the Assyrians would use that violence to achieve their goals. They built a very large empire very quickly but it was never one that could really be effectively maintained. For the reasons that we talked about earlier, violent politics are typically bad politics. But the Assyrians would make examples out of those who tried to rebel against them. One of their favorite things to do would be to flay their enemies alive, cut them down the middle, tear them open, expose their insides, to send a message to some of the other cities around them. You know, this could be you. They would skin all of the men in the city, literally skin them alive, and hang those skins off the outer walls of the city. It was a grisly and terrible way to send a message. But for the Assyrians, as the Babylonians began to fall, it made them the superpower of the Mesopotamian world and set a new path, how to gain power, but not necessarily how to keep power. Now, we can talk about some of the individual uh, Assyrian leaders, but we can't talk about all of them. But the Assyrian Empire a graphically horrifying empire. Uh, one of the most important people in terms of understanding the dynamic between North and South, Assyria and Babylonia, would be the Assyrian king Sennacherib. Now, Sennacherib was, I would describe, a very prototypical Assyrian leader. He was tough. He was nasty. He was brutal. We have examples of groups of people rebelling against him or even questioning him, and the end result being uh, a pile of human heads. Uh, if you want debate, this is what you get. Sennacherib was very much one of these early Assyrian kings who relied on rather savage tactics to achieve his goals. But Babylon was always a thorn in the side of the Assyrians, particularly Sennacherib, for the reason that this, and it's a hard dynamic for us to grasp, but it's worth talking about. The Assyrians and the Babylonians were number one enemies of each other. They despised each other. But the Assyrians never despised Babylon itself. For them, Babylon was the oldest city that they knew. Now, the Assyrians had their own capital city, Nineveh, in the north. They had their own god. They had their own base of power. But Babylon, for them, was always like this untouchable commodity. 
It was always the place of the ancients, the place of knowledge, the place of wisdoms. They deeply wanted to control the city, but had very little love for the people within or the people that surrounded it. So that was always the strange dynamic the Assyrians had with Babylon. Loved the city, loved what it represented, hated the people inside. Sennacherib, as an Assyrian king in power, did everything to keep Babylon under control, going so far as to put his own son in power, his heir to the throne in Babylon. But even that wouldn't calm the people. The uh, next event, sort of unrelated, but the repercussion definitely wasn't. Uh, Babylon, controlled by the Assyrians, was attacked by an outside force. That king, that heir to the Assyrians, Assyrian throne that Sennacherib put in power, his own son was killed. Now, from Sennacherib's vantage point, the Babylonians did not do enough to protect his son. Interesting conclusion. So what Sennacherib did was take his revenge on the city itself. And he did something. He crossed a line that many thought would never be crossed during the time period. He raised Babylon to the ground. He surrounded it. He destroyed it. He destroyed everything within it, and he killed as many people as possible. At that point, it was very clear that Hammurabi's old Babylonian empire was long gone. The Assyrians were going to be unchallenged in Mesopotamia. And they even went so far as to destroy the, the city that really was the very symbol of Mesopotamian power to that point, Babylon itself. Many would say this was a line that should have never been crossed. In fact, some historians even use it as the remarkable end of an era of time and the beginning of a whole new one. But Sennacherib showed as the Assyrian king he had absolutely no tolerance for anything he considered to be insubordination. It would fall on the next king in line for the Assyrians to reestablish Babylon as a real heart of the ancient world. The king that would take on that mission was the Assyrian king, Esarhaddon. Now, Esarhaddon did this for a few different reasons. Mostly uh, that he knew what Babylon once was. The thought of it being destroyed was appalling for most people in the region, even the most fervently Assyrian bureaucrats thought the destruction of Babylon was one bridge too far. Esarhaddon, the king, would rebuild it, and he would really put a lot of time and effort into remaking it into the Babylon that he believed it should be, the heart of logic, the heart of science, the, the, the real place of advancement, the, the real city that housed the spirit of the ancient world. But what the Assyrians failed to realize until it was too late, and something we have to really stress, is that Babylon, when controlled by someone else, was always, perpetually, a thorn in the side of that great power. They did not like to be controlled. They did not like outside influence. They did not want to be controlled. They sought constant autonomy. And they were always in rebellion. That was a lot of the reason that we saw Sennacherib destroyed in the way that he did in such a heavy-handed fashion. But eventually, as the Assyrian kingdom begins to shake and weaken, we'll see Babylon really start to expand its influence again. You have this push and pull for power. And a king by the name of Nabopolassar will take control of Babylon, probably some sort of territorial governor before this, and really take Babylon into a position with an alliance with a new group of people from the east called the Medes and the Persians, and push the Assyrians out and eventually conquer them again. So where we're left with 
is the rise of a Babylonian Empire, after the original Babylonian Empire was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. Again, no empire ever just grows and falls and appears out of nowhere. It's a slow, gradual process. But we tend to make it sound like that at times. But this new Babylonian kingdom would be bigger than any other kingdom seen yet in the ancient world. It would be bigger than Sargon's world. It would be bigger than Hammurabi's world. We call it the Neo-Babylonian Empire. That is, Babylon now at its height. And this is where we see such amazing flourish of culture. And this is really where the notion that Babylon was the heart of the ancient world. It was the spirit and soul of the ancient world. This is where that comes from. Nabopolassar will expand the Babylonian world, and it will fall to a later king, Nebuchadnezzar, to really make it into the great and powerful achievement that we think of it today. Nebuchadnezzar was a very fascinating ruler, because he understood the dynamics of power at play. The Assyrians were gone. He controlled an empire that stretched from the Persian Gulf, from the border of the modern day of Iraq and Iran, all the way nearly to Egypt. I mean, it was a massive undertaking. It was as big an empire as we've ever seen. And because of that, he had many different people to deal with. Now, it's from this time period that we see the great architectural achievements of Babylon created, most notably probably the Ishtar Gate. And you may have seen the Ishtar Gate. Uh, there's a replica of it in, in a museum in Germany. Large blue gate, uh, animals, uh, inscribed on it, various gods and, and spiritual beings inscribed on it. It was one of the most beautiful wonders of the ancient world, but certainly not the most famous wonder of the ancient world. The other wonder of the ancient world would probably be, of course, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, built by Nebuchadnezzar. And the story goes like this. Nebuchadnezzar married a Persian princess. Marriage was a sound diplomatic tool at the time. And she so desperately missed the green lavishness of the parts of the Persian peninsula she was from, that Nebuchadnezzar built the Hanging Gardens. Beautiful, lush, a massive temple. Now, here's the issue. We've never actually found archaeological evidence of any Hanging Gardens of Babylon, even though it was described later as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There's been absolutely nothing in the ruins of that city to indicate that something like that ever existed. But there was, however, uh, very strong archaeological evidence that Nineveh, the, the capital of the Assyrian world, did have a very large temple-like structure, probably more matching what we would think of as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon than anything found in Babylon itself. But at any rate, Nebuchadnezzar uh, and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon uh, go hand in hand. And every generation tends to put its own new spin on what these Hanging Gardens of Babylon would look like. But when we hear Babylon... And we have that emotional response to the notion of a Babylonian kingdom and Babylonian greatness. That comes not from Hammurabi's world, but it comes from the great conqueror Nebuchadnezzar II. Now, Nebuchadnezzar II should be a familiar name to you, because he will play a profound role in the development, at least spiritually and ideologically, of the Judeo-Christian world. If you read the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament, you will see that Nebuchadnezzar was the king uh, who attacked the region of Judah with its capital city of Jerusalem and removed Jerusalem's population to Babylon itself. Picture this. You have this enormous empire. You have a king, Nebuchadnezzar, who has small rebellions all the time, just like the Assyrians. 
The way he deals with them is brutal and swift. And Nebuchadnezzar's favorite way of dealing with them is what we would call mass deportation. That is, he takes a group of rebellious people and he spreads them to distant parts of the empire, therefore isolating them, making them feel alienated, making them feel alone, and ultimately stifling their rebellious inclinations. Well, the population of Judah were a group of people he deported to Babylon itself, and he held them prisoner there. We call this, in the Judeo-Christian world, the Babylonian captivity. Those people he kept there, the Israelites, would ultimately become known as Jews. And this is a formative part of who the Jewish people are and how they view their role and their history in this planet. The Babylonian captivity, very important in the larger narrative of, of the Jewish story. But this was Nebuchadnezzar. And again, in a position of power, it was something he could do. Uh, it was a way he believed he could handle very tumultuous situations. You know, it's interesting and slightly humorous in a way. Uh, how we we think of the ancient Babylonian world in the context of the modern age. Because these ruins lie on the Euphrates River in the heart of Iraq still today in the 21st century. It's just a fact of life. If you want to visit these ruins, if you want to experience the Babylonian world, you have to take the journey to the nation-state of Iraq. Not exactly the safest destination in 2013 and 2014. Uh, but yet, you still see that legacy there. And here's one of my favorite stories. In the late 90s and early 2000s, the dictator Saddam Hussein uh, took it upon himself to begin to rebuild, uh, that is, spruce up, you could say, the abandoned ruins of Babylon. Why? Because they were within his political domain of Iraq. He built his summer palace, in fact, looking over the ruins themselves. And the summer palace is a very beautiful, exquisite building, and that is a million-dollar view if I've ever seen one. But Saddam Hussein went so far to rebuild this that he actually uh, put on the different bricks used to construct or reconstruct the ruins of Babylon his own name. Uh, it said uh, Saddam Hussein on one side, Nebuchadnezzar on the other. And he even had a huge image of himself in the Summer Palace standing arm-in-arm, side-by-side with Nebuchadnezzar himself. So... You know, we lose that modern sense of Babylon, uh, but that's where the ruins are. They are staggeringly beautiful ruins, but they are unfortunately one of the major casualties of the uh, very tumultuous decade of war that occurred in Iraq itself. There are numerous occasions where during the invasion of Iraq, during the fighting, many of these ruins were damaged, including the Ishtar Gate by conflict between American coalition troops and various insurgent groups at the time. But at its height, Babylon was the center of the ancient world. It was the heartbeat of the ancient world. And it would stay that way. That being said, however, it would not be part of Nebuchadnezzar's Neo-Babylonian kingdom for long. Because later kings, particularly a man named Nabonidus, would oversee its downfall. Who would replace it, still to this day, is considered perhaps to be the single greatest empire of the ancient world in terms of size and scale. They were the Persian Empire. On the next episode, we'll discuss the Persians, their origins, their customs, and how they changed our planet forever. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.